This is Yudaha Kohen, Vision Movement, Vision Magazine, and you're listening to the Next Stage Podcast. This election cycle is in full swing. As of last Thursday, the faction lists have been finalized. We know who's running with who. We know who's not running with who. Uh, we've seen a series of polls. Very exciting here on the ground. And joining me today on the show is the Amina Party faction director and candidate for the BY2D, Jeremy Sultan. Jeremy, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you, Yuda. All right. First of all, I'm interested in your perspective, both as a political analyst and also as a political operative within the Yamina Party, which, uh, as I assume most listeners know, was the, the central party in the outgoing government, a government that I've been criticizing a lot, that you've been a part of. And now we have this interesting situation with uh, Naftali Bennett leaving politics, ostensibly, at least for now, and uh, Ayelet Shaked uh, trying to get back into Knesset any way possible. But I'd like to hear your take, and I, and I want to be fair, just from your perspective, but first, you. What can you share about yourself and your journey into Israeli politics? Oh, wow. I mean, uh, <laughs> that's a long history. But uh, for the interest of time, I guess I'll, I'll just talk about the last year and a half or so. Um, I, I've, uh, of course, just a little bit of background. I've been with um, Naftali Bennett and uh, Ayala Shaked on their journey um, through the Bayud into Hayamina Khadash, into Yamina, um, and then, uh, uh, of course, going into this government. And, uh, you know, when I look at the, the situation that we were in, really, when people ask me why it was that I thought this was a good idea to go into this government, I look at where we were when we had to make a choice whether to accept the deal that was put on the table or not. Um, people forget, but we're not the ones who are the architects of this government. It was Lapid who had the mandate, and he, in essence, uh, proposed a deal in which uh, there would be a 50% of the government power be given to Naftali Bennett and Gidon Sar's party, and the other 50% would be given to the other parties which included a Victor Lieberman. So there would be a sort of right-wing slant in the government in what would be a very um, left-center-leaning government. But again, going back to that decision, we're in a situation where we're uh, coming right off a operation in Gaza, um, which was a very, very difficult one. There was rockets being shot all over the place at Tel Aviv, at Jerusalem, throughout the country. We're in a situation where the farmers around the Gaza periphery uh, were not able to grow anything because of the balloons that had become a daily occurrence. We're in a situation, of course, after the riots within all of the mixed cities between Jews and Arabs, whether it was Lod or Ramle or, you know, Akko, or, or just the situation where the police closed off actual roads and highways to Jews uh, within the Negev. Uh, up north, we couldn't go on uh, the Vadiara Road going up through towards Afula from the center of the country. We we're in a situation where we were after, uh, of course, um, four straight elections within two years. We we're in a situation where we had also come off three national lockdowns 
in which we couldn't leave our house beyond 500 meters because of the various corona laws. We had the vast majority of the country on what's called halat, uh, which is unpaid um, leave, just to try to escape the unemployment numbers, which were already really bad. Our economy was in a, in a downward spiral. Our debt and our deficit were just growing beyond belief. We're in a situation where also we were under tremendous pressure by the Americans to have a uh, Palestinian consulate uh, be uh, reestablished in Jerusalem because of the incoming Biden administration. There was complete building freeze throughout Judea and Samaria. And I can just go on and on in terms of the wreck and havoc that we were just in, uh, including the situation that we had not passed a national budget in Knesset since uh, 2018. So we were in a position where we either could take the deal that we had on the table or we could decide to go to a fifth election in, again, less than three years. Uh, we decided to do what I believe was then and I still believe today was the responsible thing to do and make sure that Israel did not go into that type of chaos that required making compromises and that required making sacrifices. And that's part of politics knowing uh, what it is that you are willing to do, where your red lines are, and the ability to prioritize what is most important. And uh, I, I really do, uh, and I did also back then support uh, who was then Prime Minister Naftali Bennett's decision to take the position to accept going into this government. And I think that if you look at the great majority of the decisions that we made over this last year plus, that they were good decisions. Um, I do not feel uh, ashamed at all. I'm very proud and uh, unapologetic of all of the things that we were able to do that are good for the right wing. Um, in this government, I think also that if you look in terms of policy and not in terms of the composition of the members of the coalition, you can see on a policy level that we were definitely governing more to the right than the previous government that was led by uh, Netanyahu and the Netanyahu-Gantz previous national unity government. Um, and that's just really in brief, in summary, um, my thoughts in terms of the last year. Well, first of all, it sounds like you've had a lot of time to think about and formulate your thoughts on this question. I, you keep mentioning the word, I just wanna pick on this one word, right like the right wing the right wing when you say the right wing can you define that like who does that include what are the values what are the issues that you feel are represented by this term right wing when as it pertains to israeli society or israeli politics sure when i'm talking about right wing i'm talking about right wing across the board i'm talking about right wing on national security issues i'm talking about right wing on diplomatic issues i'm talking about right wing on economic issues i'm talking about right wing on social issues and I'm also talking about uh, what I believe is right wing also on religion and state issues, but perhaps not as far to the right as uh, those in the ultra orthodox or the more uh, Torani Khardali uh, community uh, that are members, of course, of the religious spectrum within Israel happen to be. Now, if you want, I can get into a little bit more specifics in terms of policy wise, in terms of national security, what I'm talking about right wing. I'm obviously talking about a very firm hand against Iran and all the, the proxies 
I'm talking about a firm hand against, of course, uh, Gaza and Hamas. I'm talking about a firm hand against anyone who tries to go up and uh, work against uh, the Jewish nation or the Israeli people. I think uh, those are things of uh, really of utmost importance. On the diplomatic side, uh, of course, opposition to a Palestinian state, the opposition to the two-state uh, solution, as it's known, the Clinton parameters, the 67 borders, opposition to, again, these uh, building freezes, opposition to all of these uh, types of diplomatic uh, gestures that would, again, uh, go ahead and compromise us on a national security level. In terms of economy, when I'm talking about right wing, I'm talking about uh, free market economy. I'm talking about capitalism. I'm talking about doing whatever can be done in order to ease regulations and really ease the bureaucracy, cut red tape, uh, find ways uh, to be able to do things more uh, effectively and efficiently, cut a lot of fat. Uh, there's a lot of areas uh, that I, I think the government needs to get out of uh, the business of either choosing winners and losers or as well as just having a situation in which they involve themselves in stuff that should either be done on the local community or even personal level. When I'm talking about social issues, uh, when it comes to, uh, you know, right wing things, uh, this comes to, uh, for instance, uh, uh, instead of having a lot more of the socialist uh, policies that we're seeing in terms of health, in terms of education, having more of a, uh, if you will, free market uh, look when it comes to these issues. A great example is the Kupat Cholim system, the healthcare system when it comes to going to see uh, doctors within uh, the country that are not part of the hospitals. The hospitals are still very much a big mess and we need a reform there. But just in terms of the Kupat Cholim system, um, for those who, who don't understand, we have four different uh, um, providers. We have three different levels. So you have a double competition, one on the three different levels that are provided. And the second one is on the four different service providers. And overall, you have 12 different packages that you can choose from. So again, right-wing policies in terms of trying to promote more of those type of things instead of just thinking that we can just keep throwing money at the problems. And then again, when I'm talking about religion and state, I'm a very big supporter of the reforms that uh, Matan Kahana was able to do. But I also think that uh, what people are forgetting is that we opposed a lot of things that a lot of people within the government that we sat in tried to move us a lot further uh, beyond where it is that we wanted to do. And again, I do believe that we're right wing as well on a policy level there too. Mm. Uh, by the way, the cash route, you know, um, reform, which is a good example, being able to free the market so that if I am a, uh, you know, I live in Mivacera Tzion, if I have a restaurant, instead of having the monopoly where I can only get the rabbi from Mivacera, if I want to get the rabbi from Jerusalem, because he's a better rabbi and I know that he's, uh, you know, more uh, well known and that will mean that I have a better hechsher and more people will go to my place to eat. So I can then go ahead and get that. Also putting an end to these type of situations where if I have a product that I make in a kibbutz and then I send uh, two different trucks, one that goes to Jerusalem and one that goes to Mavisarek, in which uh, according to the previous standards, 
one in Mivasirat would say it's kosher, one in Jerusalem would say it's not kosher, you know, to be able to have some sort of standards when it comes to that as well. So again, it's the idea of taking right-wing um, ideas and just really uh, across the board, national security, diplomacy, economy, uh, social issues, um, as well as religion and state. Okay, so I'm not going to waste our time or that of the listeners by arguing with you on any of those points, but I would say that I disagree with some of the things you said, some of the examples you brought. Um, what I am going to do is try to present a different way of looking at this. I think that when you know we talk about right-wing, left-wing, religious, secular, uh, conservative, liberal, we're really talking about a framings that come out of a civilization that's not ours, and when they're applied to Israeli society, they don't always fit, and they often lead to uh, problematic uh, analyses and just like errors in terms of political thinking, how people understand Israeli society, its trajectory. Um, and I think that there is a space within Israeli society. I would say those Israelis who really view themselves as part of the West or who view Israel as a Western country, um, for those Israelis, I think there does exist a linear Western-style political spectrum that for the most part goes from liberal to conservative. I think in that limited spectrum, it is probably fair to say that parties like Yamina occupy the right wing, is the conservative end of the Western political spectrum. Would you agree with that? Um, if we're going to completely zoom out, mm -hmm. the paradigm that I use that I think is most useful, you can tell me, if you find this to be useful also, is I, um, I imagine a triangle with uh, three sides to the triangle. On one side is the word Jewish. On a second side is the word democratic. On the third side is security. Um, what I do for the most part is I look at Jewish as being the right wing part of uh, the triangle. I look at democratic being the left wing part of the triangle. I look at security, which is more of a consensus issue between right and left, even though there's nuances in terms of what defines security. I use that as the centrist, as the center part of uh, the triangle, but I use it specifically as a triangle and not as a um, line, not as a linear uh, situation, because what I believe is when I look at uh, Yamina and, and really the role that we uh, filled, but I'll say this also, uh, for Israel Beitenu and also for um, uh, for New Hope, for Gidon Sar's old party, um, was that we were in the middle of the spectrum, meaning we were trying to create an equilibrium where we balanced the three sides of um, security, uh, Jewish and democratic, but we did so in a way where, again, uh, we felt that we were taking the right-wing aspect of security. We were taking the uh, right-wing aspects within democratic, and then of course also within Jewish. Does that type of a paradigm and uh, picture of a triangle assist you in the picture you were trying to portray? It doesn't, but I still applaud the creativity. I, I appreciate the imagination that goes into it. All right, well, that's something. 
Right. Uh, no, I, I, but I think we need to find new ways to understand our society and our political system. Uh, I just look at a lot of these issues as uh, friction. Like I think in Israeli society, the friction, the real friction, is between those who really want Israel to be a uniquely Jewish state, not in terms of religion, uh, which is in and of itself a Western social construct, but really in terms of like our indigenous identity, meaning like it's a conflict between forces of Westernization and forces of Jewish native identity. Uh, and I think that the parties that comprised the outgoing coalition ran the gamut between liberal and conservative in Western terms, but for the most part, all with the exception of Ram, by the way, um, but all the Jewish parties, I would say, fell into that paradigm of wanting Israel to be a Western country, a Western society. And I think a lot of the issues, like I personally don't have a problem with the inclusion of Ram, the Islamic party of uh, Mansour Abbas in the previous coalition. That never bothered me. I know that a lot of the criticism that your party took was over the inclusion of Ram. That was never my issue. Uh, for me, I just saw it as a collection of parties that represented the wealthiest sliver of Israeli society, you know, whether it's uh, Yesh Atid, Kahol Levan, etc., uh, etc., et all down the line. According to a study that uh, Devar put out after the last election, charting how Israelis vote according to class, it, basically all of the parties representing the wealthier Israelis who'd like to see Israel as an outpost of Western civilization were the parties that were included in this previous government and the parties that actually do fit onto like a Western style linear spectrum. Uh, I would actually call those the Zionist parties, like maybe from a uh, from a more Torani perspective, we can call them the parties of Yosef. Like if we look at Tzionut, if we look at Zionism, as the movement of Mashiach ben Yosef, we can say that those parties from Meretz to Yemina, including, you know, New Hope and Yisrael Baitenu and, and Geshetid, it's all the parties with the exception of Ram, we can say that those were the Zionist parties. And I would actually make the argument that uh, Smotrich's religious Zionism party is ironically not really a Zionist party, it's something else. I mean, again, that's, that's an interesting way to look at it. I, I definitely, <clears throat> see where you're coming from there. I, I agree with you completely in terms of Ram not fitting within Western society and uh, everyone really on the uh, spectrum of the other seven parties that were part of this coalition from Merits all the way to Yamina, uh, that definitely that is an aspect of it. Uh, but again, I think that goes back to uh, those that accept, you know, Israel is a, a Jewish and democratic state. Obviously, when you're looking at the other parties uh, that were part of the opposition, so you have the joint list, which of course now broke up, but the Arab parties within the joint list that just do not accept the um, Jewish aspect of the country. You have the ultra-Orthodox parties, um, which of course have an, you know, an issue with the democratic you know, aspect uh, of the country. Of course, both of those parties deal with the de facto situation that that is what the state is, but both of those groupings of parties would much rather see um, their own view of either a only uh, Jewish uh, state or only a democratic state. And then when you look at uh, the combination of the parties that ran um, under Smotrich, Smotrich's party, Otsma uh, and Noam, uh, there is, a, and I know you've um, written 
extensively about the uh, differences about uh, these three factions, but they're, they're the common denominator, if you will, between them is that uh, they have a, uh, a religious outlook to it that is not the ultra-Orthodox uh, point of view, even if there are certain similarities there. And then on the other side, you have the Likud, which is, of course, a completely secular party. I don't think people uh, fully understand this, but out of the 30 seats the Likud has, there's only two religious uh, MKs, which are Yuli Edelstein and uh, Shlomo Kari. Yuli Edelstein was a guy who came from Sharansky's old party, and Shlomo Kari is, in essence, uh, a student of Rav Mazuz, and really, you know, his, his previous home was Shas. He just sort of ran in a primary and ended up getting lucky. So really the Likud is, is a very uh, secular party, very much focused on uh, Jabotinsky. And, and I think that's the part where I, I don't fully know how, uh, and I guess this would be the point of disagreement between me and you. Likud in terms of its roots, Jabotinsky is very much a liberal uh, and, a, and a Democrat and a, and definitely someone who, who's trying to bring Israel towards uh, Western civilization in in terms of uh, uh, how he sees, uh, you know, the future. But um, there are also other aspects that he has there um, that perhaps um, uh, do seem to um, not necessarily have a place in the Likud today, but it's hard for me to find a different ideological driver or personality that I can pinpoint uh, the Likud of today, other than just Netanyahu, who doesn't really have a um, philosophy that you can look at, considering he's, of course, governed very far from the lines of the actual books that he's written in terms of when he's taken thought to put pen to paper. But perhaps his next book will, uh, will explain more or an updated version of what it is that his uh, thesis is. I think you and I could probably have a very interesting discussion on Netanyahu and what drives him. Uh, maybe if there's time for that, we'll do it. But I really want to get your thoughts on some other issues that I think are more pressing right now. Um, I, I do want to give you an opportunity to make a case for Ayala Chiquet and the Baidu D party, which you are running on. What number are you on the list? I'm number 10. Okay, so Ayala Chiked is, you know, as you mentioned before, longtime political partner to Naftali Bennett. Uh, as you mentioned, you've been on this journey with them for quite a few years. She's now going it alone, and she doesn't appear to be having an easy time of it. She's going to have to claw her way back into Knesset. And she's been expressing some contrition. I think over her involvement in the previous government, I, I'm just curious how you would, from her perspective and the perspective of those running with her, which I guess includes you, you know, you said you're you're very proud of the work that was done and you think it was the right decision to form this government. Where do you think that perspective differs from hers and others running on the list? You know, I think that we have to, first of all, deal with the situation that we're, the Bayou D is a combination of two lists. You have the Amina list and you have the Baid-UD list. Mm -hmm. And I think it's worth taking a minute and looking at what happened with in the Amina faction. If I look at the top 20 candidates from last time around, 
you have eight uh, members that became part of the Likud or Smotrich camp. You have six members that uh, stayed as part of Yamina. You have a third grouping of three of them that decided to start their own parties and sort of be uh, what we call, you know, access parties. And uh, we have two of them that ended up joining the um, center-left block by joining Benny Gantz. And, and really, Bennett is the only one that has taken a timeout out of the top 20. I think if you look at the six of us that decided to remain in Yamina, and of course, specifically the five that decided to stay with Ayelet, is you have this nuance between agreeing and accepting that we did the right thing in terms of being a part of this coalition, but also an understanding that it is too dangerous to expect that if the center left gets 61 votes, that they won't try to do something against the right in terms of a diplomatic process, in terms of national security issues. Meaning when Ayala Chiquette says, um, I, uh, you know, I, I, I think Lapita is doing an okay job. She's saying it within the context of Bennett being the alternate prime minister, the vice president, if you will, in terms of American terms, where he's able to have a lot of weight and, of course, veto power when necessary, uh, which is something he's able to exercise as part of our agreements. And there's sort of a question of what would happen in a government where there is no right wing elements and uh, we would not be able to be a part of that. Now, Ayelet has said, you know, in terms of her position that we can't go ahead and expect that there can be some sort of healing of this nation without having um, the Likud be part of the next government, whether it is a narrow government or rather it is a national unity government. Now, there are people that have an issue with that because either they think it's possible to have the Likud without Bibi. That's something that I think if we're going into in a fifth election, with Bibi still at the head of the Likud, we have to understand that um, uh, unless we're Likud party members, which at least we are definitely very far from being, um, it's not possible to influence that. Uh, or again, send us in a trajectory of just having repeated elections. You know, right now, according to the average of the polls, you have 60 for the Netanyahu bloc, you have 60 for the anti-Netanyahu bloc, that in essence means a you know dead tie, which sends us to another election. So people who are looking to vote for Ayala Chiquette and people who are looking to vote for the Bayat UD are primarily voters who really, they're too afraid of what happens if Gans or Lapid become prime minister within a 61 uh, MK framework, including the Arab parties. Now you have Hadash Natal, of course, that broke off from Balad. And on the other hand, uh, in a situation where Bibi isn't the most important thing for them, meaning they're not what we call um, rock low Bibi, they're not never Bibi people, and they're not people who are only Bibi people, right? If you look in, in America, you have people who are never Trump people, you have people who are only Trump people, and then you have people who are in the middle. 
And that's definitely um, where I would say our camp is right now. I think one of the things that you said beforehand, comparing us to the conservative, you know, Western values in terms of our position within this coalition, I think that's a perfect analogy to explain also on a policy and on a values level where we differ from whatever it is that the Likud has become or whatever it is that uh, uh, Smotrich is leading in terms of the three parties that are running on his slate. And I think that there's actually a very large portion of people who are in that category. In the last election, there were 20 seats of right-wing um, parties uh, that were saying we're right-wing, but we are not part of the only BB camp. And we're not willing to vote for Gantz or the others in the center-left block. 20 mandates is a huge amount. Um, to tell you we're going to get 20 seats, no, we're not going to get 20 seats. But I'm saying you do have the potential and a very big block of voters that are looking for that type of a voice, something that's not only BB, something that's not never BB, something that is looking for specific policy objectives. And people who really, and there are a lot of people who do, who really like Ayala Chiquette as a politician, who really want to see her as a part of the next government, whatever that government looks like. Right. So to simplify it, I guess I would say that Bait Yudi is the choice for Israeli voters who, for the most part, look at the world, look at political and social issues through the lens of Western civilization and liberal ideology and identify as right wing, identify as conservative, like a conservative voter might in the United States or Canada or Europe. Uh, and they don't want anything crazy. They don't want anything outside the bounds of what's considered legitimate in Western civilization. Baikud is a good option for those people. Yes, I agree. What's often being called the sane right or the moderate right or the normal right. Again, those are all uh, names that are being used. What, what I like to call it is the new nationalist camp. Uh, because again, I think there's a there's an essence of nationalism there too, as uh, not just conservatism. Right, but it's a very European style of nationalism, like Ziv Jabotinsky. I agree with you. I agree with you. Yes. Right. Uh, as opposed to the nationalism that you might see emanating from a guy like uh, Bezalel Smotrich or Avi Maoz, they have a very different type of Jewish nationalism that might be more Tanakhi. Correct. Yeah. Again, you know, when I look at the common denominator between Smotrich and Netanyahu when it comes to those issues, again, you know, they consider themselves the nationalist camp. I think, again, in terms of those old narratives of nationalism, um, so yes, I, I think, again, those two complement each other one on the secular side and one on the religious side. And again, what we bring in is, I believe, is part of the new nationalist camp is definitely the more, uh, um, if you will, updated, fresher uh, version in terms of what that encompasses. I'll be honest, I'm still not sure I fully understand where Netanyahu's at on a lot of the issues that are important to me. I think he does a good job holding his cards close to the vest in terms of what he really believes. Sometimes I think some of it leaks out. Um, I, I think a good example of that is his speech when this uh, when this outgoing government was sworn in. But again, the, the verdict's not in. 
in terms of Netanyahu as as far as I'm concerned. But yeah, I, but, but, but I sorry that I want to you know interrupt you on that. If someone is prime minister for 15 years, mm -hmm. how is the jury still out on someone who's governed far longer than just about any other leader in modern history? Well, if that's not a rhetorical question, I'll answer it. It's not. Okay, so my suspicion, uh, just based on things that get said not only by Netanyahu, but also by Trump, by Kushner, by Obama and others, is that Netanyahu really understood himself as quietly protecting Israel from the Americans for 12 years and doing everything in his power to thwart the plans of both the Obama and Trump administrations to take parts of our country from us. And I think that's an overwhelming task. And I get the sense that Bennett wasn't even aware that the primary antagonist in this chapter of Jewish history is U.S. empire. So, I mean, that's that's an interesting thing to put on the table. Um, I, uh, I, I disagree, obviously, with um, with that outlook in terms of that being the central issue that is on the table today. But I can see where you would be in a situation where you're still w waiting to see what Netanyahu has to say until the, uh, if you will, the end of the Netanyahu era is over. Because when it comes to that issue, it's very difficult to know until he does indeed uh, finish his, his time in politics. Ah, on, on that note, though, I think it's important to mention that it was uh, Netanyahu based on the American uh, urging uh, to negotiate with Assad uh, over the Golan when it came to Syria. Uh, he, of course, signed the, the Y Plantation Agreement, the Hebron Agreement. Uh, he, of course, um, you know, created the concept of the building freeze during the Obama years when he agreed to that, of course. Um, going in and giving in to American pressure with the Bar Ilan speech, talking about two states for two people, um, releasing uh, terrorists, including those with blood on their hands, in terms of just goodwill gestures, and just many, many other things that were done where, uh, I'll agree with you, it wasn't giving over land. Although if you look at the maps of Y Plantation, as opposed to the maps of Oslo II, you can see that Netanyahu increased the amount of area that uh, was given to the Palestinians in terms of areas A and B. But um, uh, I'm just saying that if, if you are going to look at it from that perspective, perhaps it's worthwhile to sort of uh, cut Netanyahu's term into two eras, because definitely in the first part of his era, it's very difficult to see that type of thing happening. Yeah, well, I'll elaborate a little bit. I think that when Netanyahu first became prime minister in 1996, he saw himself as the successor to Begin and Shamir, and he tried unsuccessfully to deal with the Americans as Shamir had, right? Shamir had just basically Shamir said no. That was Shamir's reputation in the press, Mr. No. Whatever the Americans demanded of him, if he didn't think it was good for us, no. That was Shamir. Now, Shamir is the type of person who could do such a thing because he just was that type of person. We're talking about a different generation. We're talking about people who lost their entire families, people who fought in the underground against the British, uh, people who experienced things that Netanyahu never had to go through. Now, Netanyahu just wasn't Shamir. 
And when he tried to be Shamir, I think he had his ass handed to him by Bill Clinton. I think he was basically beaten into submission. He was offered Pollard, then Pollard was taken away. Uh, he was forced to sign things that really went against his worldview and values, etc. And uh, then Clinton sent a team led by James Carville to remove him from office in 1999. Now, when he came back in 2009, a decade later, I think he played a very different game. And again, it's not a game I'm comfortable with. And just for the record, I've never in my life voted for Netanyahu. And I could be wrong. This analysis could be wrong. Speculation on my part. But I'm of the belief that Netanyahu came back playing a different game where he would tell the Americans yes, not no. Yes, he went along with whatever they said, at least to them and then did everything in his power to make it not work. Uh, so he said Palestinian state, two-state solution, not because he believed in those things, but because it's what Obama made him say. In fact, I remember a conversation I had with Zev Elkin uh, back in 2009, before, before June, before the Bar-Ilan speech, when uh, Elkin told me, he said, they don't stop, you know, George Mitchell, Hillary Clinton, They're calling him day and night just to get him to say those words, just to get him to say Palestinian state, two-state solution. So he said it, but then he did everything in his power to make it impossible. And again, same with the Trump plan. And I think that's why you have these recordings from Barack Ravid, where Trump doesn't speak very highly of Bibi and things in the Kushner memoirs that really reveal a lot of antagonism between the two leaders, or at least a lot of hostility coming from Trump to Bibi. I think for the most part, he's hated by American leaders who have to deal with him because they feel lied to. And I think that was his game. I think his game was just to tell them yes, but do the opposite. It's not a very manly game as these things go. I think it takes a certain type of person to realize I'm not going to succeed in fighting them frontally. I've just got to slither my way through their fingers and do what I have to do to protect my country. And, and I do believe that is where Bibi's coming from. I think it's easy to look at him and it, it's confusing whether or not Netanyahu's an ideologue or really just like a self-serving political animal. And my assumption, at least right now, and it, it could be different if we have this conversation in six months or a year, but my assumption right now is that he really is an ideologue deep down, but creates enough ambiguity creates enough space for people to see him as just a selfish politician so that he can avoid the United States treating him like an ideologue uh, because uh, because they did also remove Shamir from office. You know, in 1992, in fact, Moshe Ahrens wrote a book about Bush one and James Baker interfering in our political system to get rid of Shamir. And as I said before, you know, Clinton did it in 99 by sending James Carville here. And Obama tried 2015, you know, V15. So I think Bibi just wants to avoid that happening. He wants to remain in office. He wants to be able to protect his country. That, that's how I see him right now. I could be wrong. You don't, you don't agree with me, though, that if Shas didn't join the Rabin coalition in 92, um, Rabin just wouldn't have been able to form a government. And Shamir might have had a chance to form one. I think that the deals offered to Shas, uh, again, we're, we're going to get deep in the woods with this if we're not careful, but I think that... Yeah, no, no, but, but, but I'm saying you can just say that you think that, you know, it was that Derry had, had already made a deal with Robin, which a lot of people yeah. say, and 
I, I would argue that it was yeah. not Rabin, it was Perez. I think it was Perez who was really Washington's man on the ground at the time. I don't think Washington expected Rabin to win the primary in the Labour Party at that time. I think they were betting on Perez, they got stuck with Rabin and they did the best they could, but I think their man, their moves were made through Perez at the time. It's very possible. I understand the narrative that you're saying there, but uh, that's fine. I guess we'll agree to disagree on what happened there. Right. That's fair. I'm interested in what you have to say about some of these party lists. What it mean? Why did Balad not join the joint list? Uh, why is Balad running separately? What does it mean? Um, I mean, it's clear that uh, Smotrich managed to bring Ben Gvir and Avima Oz with him. Like those parties are all running together again. Uh, Avoda and Meretz did not join forces despite Yair Lapid's uh, best efforts. What does all this mean? The fact that uh, some of these parties are running together, some of them are not. Um, let's start with Balad running separate from the joint list in Ram. I mean, I imagine you don't see Balad getting in this time. No, I don't see Balad get, getting in. Um, they've never been able to get four seats ever when they ran on their own. Even when Balad ran together with TB or in other variations, you know, in the past we did have situations where there'd be two parties running together within the Arab uh, uh, collection of parties, uh, they, they've never been able to hit four. The only time that they hit four was when Ram and Balad ran together. Uh, that was in 2019. Um, and I think, again, it's it's quite clear that even back then, Mansour Abbas, who was the head of the list, that it was Ram uh, leading the show and not Balad. Um, in the outgoing Knesset, you know, uh, Sami Abu Shkade, who's the current leader of Balad, is, is just a one-seat party. I, I just don't see them being able to pass. It's possible they even drop out. It's not clear to me what's going to happen with that. Um, but what I can tell you is that Hadash and Tal deciding to run separately from Balad, the entire thing comes down to whether Balad drops out or not. If Balad does not drop out, that's great for Bibi. If Balad does drop out, so that's great for Lapid, because that means their votes will split between Ram and Hadash and Tal, the other uh, Arab lists that are running, and Balad, who is the one party that refused to recommend uh, Gantz or Lapid in the latest rounds of elections that we've been having, uh, will not be a part of the game, and it will be more legitimate for Lapid or even Gantz to cooperate with Hadash and Tal in that type of a situation. I think personally, most likely, and like I said, we saw this also in round one, that if Balad does drop off, um, that, uh, that that could help uh, also um, Mansour Abbas and Ram, who are also dealing with threshold problems. And that's really the, the deal with Lapid, because Lapid is dealing with merits by the threshold, labor by the threshold, Lieberman is by the threshold. You have Hadash and Tal by the threshold. You have Mansour Abbas and Ram by the threshold. Um, really, the only party within the block of parties within the center left in Arabs um, that is doing well besides Lapid is Gantz's party. But also, there we see um, that the depth of support of the people within his list are, it's just not very strong, meaning. Uh, a lot of those votes could get peeled off and go in other directions. And if you look on the other side of the spectrum to Netanyahu and his block, 
he's in, in the complete different side. Um, Lapid, who failed to deal with Arab parties getting together, he failed with dealing with labor and merits getting together. So Netanyahu was very successful. He got Smotrich, Ben Gvir, and Noam, the three of them, to run together on the same ticket. He was able to get UTJ of uh, Aguda Israel and Degla Torah to uh, make a deal and run together. Shas is uh, pulling consistently in the fifth position, meaning Netanyahu and his block are set. He's, he's set up uh, from his perspective for victory. All he needs to do is work on his get out the vote, go to areas of Likud strongholds and try to increase uh, the voting uh, in areas where they were low in the last election versus Lapid, who he needs to pray and not campaign against any of the people within his block other than Gantz, because if he does and if he's successful in doing so, he runs the risk of throwing them under the threshold, which would most likely give Netanyahu uh, the 61 majority that he seeks. Right. Well, first of all, I'll be honest, as somebody who does travel in left-wing and Palestinian spaces, from the perspective of Hadash or Tal um, or even Ram, I don't see a significant difference between Lapid and Netanyahu. Like, I don't think that uh, any of those parties or any of those politicians have any reason to support Lapid over Netanyahu. I think, if anything, the only reason why um, they're more likely or Ram is more likely to be in a Lapid government than a Netanyahu-led government is because Smotrich and Ben Gvir are not willing to sit together with Ram. But assuming that uh, that Smotrich and Ben Gvir could get over that, I, I could see Ram going with Netanyahu quicker than going with Lapid. Um, and in terms of Hadash and Tal, I think it's all the same. I think that uh, you know Zionism is Zionism. They're experiencing themselves as victims of settler colonialism. Yair Lapid is no less the face of that than Netanyahu is. You know, one of the interesting things that we had in the last government is. Um, the no confidence motion that got the closest to success. In that no confidence motion, it was Yaakov Margi, who was the head of Shas and Knesset, after Derry needed to resign due to his legal issues, who got the closest to toppling the government because the joint list was willing to vote in a constructive no confidence motion for Shas to get the premiership. Um, and it's interesting because you would also assume if Ram wasn't part of the coalition, that they would also be very comfortable in in uh, voting there. And then, you know, we would have had a Shas uh, prime minister had that um, had that worked out with Ram uh, moving over and being persuaded to go in that direction. I think Ram really does want to work uh, not just with ultra orthodox parties, which they have a very close relationship with. I can tell you that as someone who gets to hang out in the back room behind the Millennium, where you can't take pictures or videos. The uh, Haredi parties are probably the closest to Ra'am. They back each other up on many uh, pieces of legislation on both social and economic issues. There is a lot of cooperation there. Um, and again, Mansour Abbas had a lot of cooperation with Bibi in the past before this coalition. And I think you're right. If not for Smotrich, um, that would be the preferred government of Mansour Abbas and the Ram Party. When it comes to Hadash and Tal, I think uh, with Hadash, 
they actually, um, uh, of course they did, they recommended Gantz. Afterwards, they also recommended uh, Lapid. Uh, Hadash being a party that, you know, has a big component of Maki and is very happy hooking up with Labour and Merits and supporting their candidate for prime minister, regardless of who it is, as long as it's not a right-wing candidate. So again, when I'm looking at Ayman Oda and I'm looking at uh, Omar Kassif and, and their party, I think it's very easy to see why it is that it's more difficult to see them in an Netanyahu government. When it comes to Ta'al, Ta'al is a more centrist party. It's a lot more pragmatic, um, but they're still, they're, they're part of Hadash and Ayman Oda is the head of the list and therefore TB and Ta'al are sort of forced to go along with Hadash also because TB understands, just as Balad learned, that if you don't go with Hadash, which is the strongest and largest of their parties, there is the risk of uh, being erased. And really, Balad was erased. Had, you know, Ra'am waited, they, they even thought, uh, I think possibly um, a little bit here and there, whether it was worthwhile for them to even consider going back on the previous um uh, chance they had with running with Balad in 2019 if Balad would agree to the things that Ram wanted, which I didn't think Balad would. But um, in essence, Balad probably uh, just just as Mada did, one of the other previous historic um, Arab parties, I think has just, you know, thrown itself off the political map. And um, I, I think because of that, it's going to be very difficult for TB to accept a Netanyahu-type government, and he's going to be very much built into following uh, Ayman Oda this lead. Right. I just think from a Marxist perspective or from a Palestinian perspective, it's very clear that Benny Gantz has killed so many more Palestinians than Itamar Ben-Gvir. And to play this game where, you know, these Tel Aviv Zionists are okay, but those guys in the Shtachim are not, yeah, I don't think that's a game that a lot of these Palestinian parliamentarians are going to keep playing. So Balad agrees with you 100%. You know, again, what you're saying is, in essence, what Balad has always said, even before Sami Abu Shkade was was the leader, going back to the party's you know founder of uh, Azmi Bshara, and you know, going through Jamal Zahalka and uh, all of their friends, uh, the ones that went to prison, like uh, Ratas and Nafa. And those that almost went to prison, like Zoabi and um, Yazbek, um, you, you have a collection of people who agree 100% with what you said. They see absolutely no difference between Gantz, Bibi, Smotrich, Benvir, whatever else. And if anything, uh, to them, Gantz is even worse. And that's why when it came down to um, uh, suggesting, recommending candidates for prime minister in the president's house, that Balad always abstained themselves and took themselves out of the equation where the rest of the joint list um, and the other air parties were willing to go ahead and support uh, whoever you know the anti-Netanyahu candidate was at the time. Right, if anything, I would say that, uh, I don't know about Bibi again, he's still somewhat a mystery to me, uh, but I think certainly the guys in the Smotrich block and certainly the Haredim uh, could have a more productive and healthy and maybe even horizontal relationship with the Palestinian parties than I think Lapid or Gantz or Meretz or Avodah could have. I think from the perspective of what you keep referring to as the Israeli left, meaning the liberal Zionist camp, 
the Palestinians are always going to just be Arabs. You know, they're just going to be the people who we didn't finish displacing. So again, you know, it, it depends through the prism of which party you're looking at. If all the Palestinians and all the, you know, Israeli Arabs and everyone was the same, so there would only be one party. So, so there are nuances, but definitely what you're, um, what you're illustrating is a very big, large uh, part of the population. It'll also be interesting in terms of turnout, meaning if Balad doesn't end up running, um, and we do see the turnout in the Arab community drop significantly, which is something that a lot of uh, current um, political analysts within the Arab community specifically are predicting, then um, that would just show that there are a lot of Palestinians who agree with what you're saying in terms of the feeling on the street and their inability to vote for politicians who are taking positions that are different than what you are um, conveying at the moment. Right. So I, I'd like to move back to Netanyahu for a second, because I'll tell you what my concern is, and I'd like to hear what you think. I am concerned that after this election, even if there are 61 or 62 seats between Likud, the Haredim, and the National Religious, I'm concerned that Netanyahu, either from American pressure or otherwise, that Netanyahu might decide to form a unity government with Benny Gantz. Do you think there's any legitimacy to my concerns? Yeah, I absolutely think the first phone call that Netanyahu is going to make, whether he has 61 or not, is going to be to Benny Gantz. And why do I feel that way? Because that's been his track record. Just briefly, in 1996, instead of bringing Rachabam Zaevi and the Maledit party into the coalition, he took the third way led by Avigdor Kalani, which was a collection of labor MK breakaways. Mm -hmm. um, in 2009, when he came back into power, instead of uh, calling Ketzel and the National Union, he decided to call Ehud Barak and the Labor Party and bring them into the coalition. And we know that Ehud Barak would later run with the Merits Party. You know, he was even further to the left, which was something we knew back then. In 2013, instead of his first call being to Naftali Bennett and the Bayt-UD Party, which he had even promised during his election campaign, his first call instead was to Tzipi Leavening. And he signed his first coalition agreement with her and gave her the Justice Ministry and the position of the portfolio to deal with the negotiations with the Palestinians, those who remember the Kerry talks. Um, and Bennett was only able to squeeze his way into the coalition after he made a deal with um, Lapid. And then in 2015, of course, um, Bibi ran into to Kathlon and he signed with him. He tried to convince Labour and Bushi Herzog to join the coalition. Uh, the only reason it didn't happen is because Herzog said no, but that was what he had preferred. And then at the last minute, when he had no choice, he went back to Bennett and signed with him at the deadline. And then in 2019, you know, um, instead of working hard to bring Lieberman into the coalition, he instead um, decided to negotiate with Labour again. And Avi Gabay, Tal Russo, and those people, in the end, he wasn't able to get a coalition agreement done. And that led to us going to a second election. In the third election, uh, when we did get a national unity government, he agreed to a rotational government that would make Benny Gantz prime minister. And again, he gave the justice ministry to Avi Nisimporn. And again, a lot of the most important, you know, portfolios um, that are part of the government. So if you see Netanyahu's track record, it is very, very, very clear 
that he always, 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 every single government he's either been able to formulate or even try to formulate, that he's always gone to the other camp and tried to bring someone in from that side. He's never said, I'm going to have a narrow right government. He's never had a narrow right government. In that instance, he's the anti-Yitzchak Shamir. We know that Yitzchak Shamir's last government from 1990 to 1992 was in essence the only time that Israel had a all right uh, government. And um, Netanyahu was prime minister for 15 years collectively, always preferred to have a right wing party in the opposition on the outside uh, in order for him to say, uh, look, there's someone more extreme than me. You have to swim with me because if not, you will get that other person. So I agree with you again from a historical you know, level, looking at the trend, the first call that uh, Netanyahu is going to make is going to be to Benny Gantz. Right. And I think a lot of that has to do with the way uh, Netanyahu perceives himself as being seen by the outside world. I think that, you know, what you call the right and the left is essentially when it comes to Israeli politics viewed from the outside, you know, the left are the quote unquote good Israelis, the liberal Zionists, the people that will do what the Europeans and the Americans would like to see Israel do. And what they call the right are the people who attempt to resist what the Americans and Europeans are pushing here. And I think that uh, Netanyahu, again, in order to cover himself, uh, likes to show the world that he's forming a unity government. And uh, again, he's not Shamir. I think Shamir just went ahead and did what he believed to be best for the Jewish people and the land of Israel. He wanted to protect Eretz Israel and fill her with Jews. And that was pretty much it. And uh, he was willing to take on anybody in order to do it. Uh, Netanyahu is not made from that kind of stuff. I, I don't think it's fair for us to expect him to be. Um, again, I've never voted for the guy, probably don't plan to, but I, I try to be honest in my assessment of these things. I, I think it's important for us to really, when we analyze our political leaders and their behaviors and historical events, I think we need to be very sober and honest in order to come to the right conclusions. Yeah. Yeah, I again, I, I hear what you're saying. I think there's a lot of truth in that. All right. So, um, Bekitzer, you know, in closing, your message to the Israeli public, if um, somebody sees themselves as part of Western civilization on the right of our political spectrum, a Western conservative in Israel, their choice is by Yudi. Correct. And you believe that's like 20 seats worth of people. I said, you know, the potential is 20 seats of people just because if I look at what Bennett, Saar, and Lieberman got mm -hmm. in the last election, that was 20 seats. Mm -hmm. So that's the potential of the pool of seats. That doesn't mean that we're going to get 20 seats because we're not going to get 20 seats. And of course, Lieberman is going to maintain some of it. I don't think we'll get the seven seats that he got before. I think he's going to drop. Um, but I think, yeah, there's a big school of voters within Israel that consider themselves to be right-wing, but they, they, they just, they don't connect. They don't connect to Bibi. They don't connect to the Likud. They don't connect to the direction that he has navigated that party towards. And they also, they, they don't connect to Smotrich and his list. To them, either uh, Ben Gvir and Otzma is too much, 
or perhaps Avimos and Noam is too much for them. Perhaps the type of rhetoric from Smotrich checking people's tzitziot, uh, as they would say, not shaking hands with members of the Amina faction. That's just stuff that turned off a lot of people who felt that that behavior and that outlook was just way too extreme. Right. I would actually argue, perhaps ironically or maybe not, that uh, Ben Gvir and Otsma is a much more attractive choice to a lot of Israelis than his partners in Noam and Smotrich's party. I know many voters that when it looked like they were running separately, I know Yamina voters who are willing to vote for Ben Gvir instead of Smotrich because, again, they, they blamed Smotrich for leading that line that I just explained, you know, the incitement and the discrimination against Yamina uh, members and their followers. And, and Ben Gvir was very smart about that. He didn't play that game. He was very much committed to, you know, policy as opposed to personality in terms of his attacks. And, and that was something where, especially if you're looking at the Amina voters, which are now, uh, many of them are by UD voters, they're policy based. They're people that care about policy. Again, you know, you're talking about democracy and Western civilization. These things are considered illegitimate blend between uh, both the person and their political opinion into the same thing. I might be hearing you conflate two issues, which I think are very important. You know, I've spoken a lot about the friction between those Jews who are really deeply living their people's story, really rooted in Jewish identity, Jewish history, uh, and tend to see the world through that lens, versus what I call the forces of Westernization, those who just want Israel to be an outpost of the West. But then there's also this other issue of democracy, which I kind of hear you throwing in there as well. You know, when I talk about democracy, uh, I mean empowering people to be able to influence the structures they live under. I would like to see Israel become more democratic. In fact, I don't see anything uh, uniquely Western about democracy. I think empowering people is not a Western thing. I think empowering people is a good human thing. So I, I just want to make sure there's no confusion when I talk about for sure. I, again, look, I, I appreciate the, the difference between institutional democracy and liberal democracy. I'm saying, though, also, you know, when you're looking at things from an institutional democratic level, that there is this basic idea of separation of powers and there's this basic idea of things fitting in to specific boxes. That's without going into, you know, a more liberal uh, democracy. And, and those type of Western values. What I'm saying is, is that you know, uh, w when you have this this position that uh, we saw that Smolrich uh, was taking, which is it, it really one that, that again, it, there's a democratic issue with that position, saying you know that there's a um, illegitimacy to the uh, fact that this current system, whether you like it or not, if you have a majority of 61 out of the 120 in parliament, you do get to have the seat of government. It does not matter how many uh, uh, seats you have in terms of governing party, you know, sort of those type of arguments, trying to turn those, if you will, even into moral arguments and into liberal democratic arguments. 
that was something that a lot of people also they, they just did not agree with they did not um uh support and again within the the idea that parties that are allowed through the democratic institutions uh such as uh, the supreme court that they can run and be a part of the political process to not use them as part of the political process is another one of those examples of an argument that that Smotrich was putting forth um and again doing so in a way that that doesn't make sense you can go ahead and say listen uh i have a disagreement i don't think that ram should be a part of the political process i support a system where the central elections committee can decide to get rid of uh parties and that the supreme court will not have judicial review over that process and then to work towards getting a majority within the parliament in order to pass that type of legislation and then just turning that idea into law as opposed to trying to delegitimize people who are working within the actual institutional democratic system as it is known hopefully that's a clarification that explains why those two issues are not conflated no i appreciate that but i think when it comes to people like smotrich or avi maoz i think that to israelis uh who identify as nationalists connected to jewish identity connected to jewish history but are not really part of the khardal camp smotrich and maoz are a lot more culturally foreign than somebody like ben gvir i think a lot of people are able to see themselves a lot of the average israeli so to speak are able to see themselves in ben gvir and identify with his rhetoric and see him as somebody who's socio-culturally more familiar or closer to them than smotrich or maoz yeah i i think yeah, it's worth even doing uh i don't necessarily think i'm the right person for this but to have a guest and really just dive you know do a full hour on on the differences and the similarities because both of those things are interesting in terms of uh Smorich uh Ben Gvir and Maoz in terms of um the deep-rooted ideologies and then also in terms of the practical policy positions that come out of it again where where I was taking it was just from where the voter sees the finished product and um just you know again interacting with voters they did not agree with the direction that Smotrich took things and i think because of that that's that's something that's going to help the bytd when it comes to the ballot box on november 1st because again people don't it's very difficult for them to swallow the way that he chose to package those messages All right. Well, uh, Jeremy Sultan, thank you so much for joining me and taking time out of your busy schedule. I know that uh, you're currently at the Knesset. There's the plenums going on. You're supposed to be there. You ducked out to record with me, so I really appreciate that. I appreciate your time and I appreciate your insights. Thank you. It's it's always a pleasure speaking with you, Yehuda. You know, we uh we obviously have a number of key disagreements, but it's always very interesting to have a conversation with you. and be able to break down a lot of these very important things that are a part of the life that we all live. So thank you for the opportunity. My pleasure. Uh you actually have a blog with political analysis, just electoral analysis, correct? Yes, uh I have a website knessetjeremy.com. I have all of the different polls that are released during the election process from the submission of lists up until the black zone when it's no longer permitted to publish polls 
before election day. I have analysis, commentary. Uh, I have a very interesting piece that I just put up that shows the contrast between where we are now, six weeks before the election, to where we were in the previous election, six weeks before the election. You can see there the polls versus the actual results and uh, a lot of the trends. It's uh, some very interesting stuff, highly recommended. You can also uh, follow me on Twitter. My handle is at the Jeremy man. Okay, great. So that's an important resource. Uh, KnessetJeremy.com, is that correct? Correct, yes. Okay, great. So listeners who are interested in more of Jeremy's analysis should go there. Now that analysis is not necessarily partisan, correct? Like you don't have to be a buy to no, a supporter. No, not at all. It's uh, I'm uh, across the board. Um, people accept my analysis is uh, as objective. It's been used in, in many places from, you know, uh, 538, you know, from Nate Silver, you know, in the States, through the BBC in the UK, and uh, many other outlets here in Israel. Um, yeah, it's it's very much uh, straight up um, good analysis. I don't uh, do anyone any discounts. Okay, great. So listeners should check that out. Jeremy, thanks again. It was a pleasure speaking to you. And uh, if listeners are interested in checking out the show notes, you can go to visionmag.org backslash the next stage, 85.